With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. The draw for the Betfred World Championship first round has been made. I'm sure you're all aware. It's very, very interesting. I think as uh, we're, what, two days from the Crucible, so this, I'm going to call it a special edition of the podcast. It's no more special than any other. Um, but we're going to just go down uh, the, the draw and I'll give a few thoughts. And then later on, uh, the emails that have come in over the last few weeks, uh, we will uh, we will go through. So, uh Ah, the World Snooker Championship is really, uh, now, has now come to life after 10 tough days of qualifying. Already it was an interesting set of qualifiers and the matches. I'll go down the draw, then I'll just give a few thoughts on each match. So we've got Mark Selby against Jamie Jones. This is draw order, by the way. Mark Selby against Jamie Jones. Yambing Tower against Chris Wakelin. Barry Hawkins against Jackson Page. Mark Williams against Michael White. Karen Wilson against Ding Jun Wee. Stuart Bingham against Lou Haishan. Anthony McGill versus Liam Highfield, Judd Trump versus Hussain Vafai, that's the top half. Bottom half, Neil Robertson versus Ashley Hugill, Jack Lazowski against Matthew Stevens, Luca Purcell against Nopin Senkarm, John Higgins against Tepchar and Nu, Jazzin Tong against Jamie Clark, Sean Murphy against Steve Maguire, Mark Allen against Scott Donaldson, Ronnie O'Sullivan against Dave Gilbert. Julie Andrews, I believe, not a snooker fan necessarily, but she was right when she said, let's start at the very beginning because it's a very good place to start. Day one, Saturday, first out, Mark Selby and Jamie Jones. <sighs> Mark Selby, sort of, I mean, seems odd to say this because he's won four of the last eight World Championships, but this year he's an unknown quantity for the very simple reason he hasn't played for two months. He hasn't played since the Welsh Open. He's taken a break. He's dealing with, obviously, personal issues that have been well documented. But there's nerves anyway when you defend the title. I mean, obviously, the first-time champion is under massive pressure. But any uh, defending champion, because you're playing that first day, it's the old Steve Davis saying, the first shock hasn't happened yet and it could be you. Uh, they're under it. And Mark Selby has lost on day one to Joe Perry. And he's come close a couple of other times. Uh, Kurt Maffin, Michael White in first rounds of running close. Jamie Jones, you know, I'm going I'm to be the first maybe to roll out this this phrase. It won't be the last time you hear it. Jamie Jones is a crucible player. Jamie Jones, for some reason, goes there and performs well. He's a former quarter-finalist last year. Of course, having had his suspension, qualified, beat Steve Maguire 10-4 in round one. I'm saying that is a tough draw for Mark Selby. 
I'm not saying he's going to lose because I've no idea whether he will or not. But he could have had easier matches than that. Jamie Jones, he's a very assured, confident character, and uh, I think that's a, that's a tough one. But of course, Mark Selby is. As I say, whoever he would have drawn, something of an unknown quantity. We will find out, I think, how he's feeling, you know, on Saturday. If, if he Obviously, if he loses, that's it. But if he wins and wins well, then suddenly, you know, his odds will definitely be cut and people will start to think, actually, maybe, you know, he's the Mark Selby that we've seen at the Crucible down the years. I think the story of this draw is that, you know, several top players have got really tough draws and we'll come on to a few more in due course. But the next match, Jan Mintau, Chris Wakelin. Uh, Wakelin yet to win a match at the Crucible, but, uh, well, maybe this will be the year. Yambing Tao has, he's played a lot of snooker this season without quite sort of getting his hands on a trophy or really threatening seriously to do so. Of course, he's seen, uh, Xiaoxing Tong win two. Of course, he beat him 9-0 in the German Masters final. But I know a lot of people feel that if you take those two together, you know, you've got one very attacking player, Xiaoxing Tong, you know, sort of very open player. And you've got Yambing Tao who, Despite being the younger man and, and, and still, you know, one of the youngest players in this tournament, he's got a de- highly developed safety game, plays the percentages. Maybe that will be, uh, maybe that will work at the Crucible. Phil Yates on this very podcast a couple of weeks ago said he was one of his picks. And that's interesting, but I think so much of that revolves around what happens to Selby. If Selby loses day one, that really opens up for Yan Bing Tao, Chris Wakelin to play Jamie Jones to get to the quarterfinals. Um, and by the time he starts his match, I think I'm right in saying Yamming Tao will know Selby's fate. Um, now, you could say that puts extra pressure on him, but also extra motivation. If Mark Selby loses at the top of the draw, then that definitely opens up. It opens up for all of them, actually, but Yamming Tao certainly is the seed there. Um, you know, he might be the man to come through. Barry Hawkins against Jackson Page. Well done to Jackson Page for qualifying. He's the 20th Welshman to get through. The sixth this year. It's not a record. We had 18, 1990. Um, I have to say, though, I think... I think he, he would, well, there's two things to say. Firstly, debutants, you know, it's tough at the Crucible. There's so much build-up, there's so much talk. They've grown up watching it, suddenly they're there. So many players have, have lost their first match there. People, you know, the greats have done it. Uh, Ronnie O'Sullivan, John Higgins, Stephen Hendry, there's three straight away. They all lost their first match, you know, at the Crucible. Um, and I think Barry Hawkins is... It, the sort of player he will find it hard to beat for the very simple reason that Barry, I think, will know how to play him. He's a he's a sort of percentage player, measured player. He may have too much for him, but we'll see. Jackson's a bit of a sort of wild card in this, I think, because, you know, he's an ultra-attacking player, very attractive to watch when they're going in. And, you know, he's every right to be confident and go there and enjoy it. That's the thing. And if he does, he'll put Hawkins under pressure. If he starts knocking him in, he'll put him under pressure. But I think I don't think it's the worst draw, actually, for Barry Hawkins. Um, the next one, Mark Williams, of course, Jackson Page's uh, mentor, gets Michael White. Now, White's beaten him there in the past. Of course, he's playing under amateur status, but no one really thinks of him that way. Um, good to see him back playing well again, and he's going to be back on the tour as a result of, uh, well, as a result of his exploits uh, as an amateur this season, but uh, also you, you, the fallback is if you qualify for the Crucible, you get a card. Um, I don't know about that one. I think I think that's a dangerous one for Mark Williams, but, uh, you know, he's got all the experience in the world, hasn't he? And he's played very well, I think, at times this season, almost sort of unnoticed. There's matches you feel he probably should have won that he didn't. Obviously, the most, you know, famous one was that Masters semi-final against Neil Robertson, where, you know, he, he looked like he was in the final again. Um, just missed out through various sort of unfortunate incidents. 
And also, at the uh, Players' Championship, he had three centuries against Ricky Walden and, and somehow lost 6-5. So he's produced some good snooker along the way. British Open winner, of course. And uh, not a lot of people seem to be talking of his chances, but I wouldn't be surprised if he if he did well this, this year. Uh, you know, looking for title number four. Now, the, the, the next one is the real first standout tie. Kyron Wilson against Ding Junhui. I think all the top 16 players wanted to avoid Ding. You know, player proven quality, three times UK champion, Masters champion, world championship runner up the last time he had to qualify in 2016. 14 ranking events to his name. You know, he's a, he's a world class player and he could win the tournament. You know, he could. Uh, but he's got a tough draw as well. I don't think, you know, Kyron Wilson would not have been top of his list of people he wanted to play. Uh, Kyron's got a very good record in recent times, runner-up, semi-finals, quarter-finals. You know, doesn't sort of, I think he's only lost in the first round once, and that was on his debut to Ricky Walden. So, well, that's, that could be a barnstormer, really. And, as I say, they both, I think, would look at that and think, uh, this is not the draw I wanted. Uh, close one, I feel. Stuart Bingham, Lou Hai-Shan. Bingham, it should not be forgotten how well he played last year. He played brilliantly, I thought. Um, you know, a couple of matches that maybe went under the radar, but I did a lot of his one with McGill in the quarterfinals, and he, he made a century in the decider, which is quite a rare feat. Lou Hai-Shan playing for the third time. He did beat Marco Fu on his debut, lost heavily last year to Mark Allen. I think Bingham, you know, form comes and goes, and his form has come and gone, but that's not the worst draw for him, I don't think, when you look at some of the other people that he could have had. Anthony McGill, Liam Highfield. Highfield, a bit like Chris Wakelin, looking to win his first match at the Crucible. This is his third appearance. McGill, as we know, tends to save his best for last. There's something about the Crucible. We talk about some of the more established players struggling there. There's something about the Crucible that suits Anthony McGill, you know, but for all sorts of bizarre happenings, he would have been in the final two years ago. Last year, he beat O'Sullivan and lost in that decided, I mentioned, to Bingham in the quarters, 13-12. So, uh, he's the, the sort of um, the form horse at the Crucible there, obviously with his record compared to Highfields. They're, they're from the same sort of generation, um, roughly the same age. Uh, McGill obviously has done better. We're still waiting for Highfields' real big breakthrough. Um, there's no reason to necessarily think it's going to come at the Crucible. You never know. But um, bear in mind, I'm the person who a few weeks ago, someone said, uh, if you could tip a qualifier to go a long way, who would it be? I said Gary Wilson. Well, he lost 6-0. <laughs> in his in his first and only match, so that was the end of that. Uh, yeah, that was the end of that. But um, Jamie Clark, I think, was it who beat him. Anyway, uh, so anyway, but this, that, this this sort of preview comes with a health warning. But McGill's got to be the favourite there. Um, and then the final match of this uh, of this half. Well, what a what a interesting one. Judd Trump against Hussein Vafai. They played, of course, uh, in Wales, didn't they? The uh, Welsh Open semis, where Trump came back well. I think he's 5-3 down, 1-6-5. Um, Judd Trump, I mean, it's not been as successful a season as the last few, but that's because they were really successful. He's won two tournaments, and most players would say that's pretty good. Champion of Champions and Turkish Masters. He hasn't been able to sustain his form, though. It's come and gone, really, in fits and starts. I think that's been, for him, the disappointment. It's not been, you know, consistently good campaign. It's just been moments, really, and this is a tough draw for him. Hussein Vafai is a debutant, and so again, untested at the Crucible, we don't know how he'll react to it. It's a big deal. You know, first player from Iran, the 20th nation represented there. Um, it's a big deal. It means a lot to him. So, he's got to cope with the occasion. He's playing Trump, who obviously is one of the toughest draws. 
But that is potential banana skin for sure. Um, and, you know, Trump, over the years in the first round, he's had a lot of close matches. Uh, but so much of that, I think, is on the fight. Um, he gave a rather odd interview, I thought, to, to, to the Metro. Uh, Phil, Phil Haig wrote the story up, essentially saying Ronnie O'Sullivan should retire. Um, saying that, you know, he's uh, sort of damaged the game with his comments. Uh, I mean... Listen, there's a lot of people in the game, a lot of players as well, who don't like some of the things Ronnie said. They don't think it helps the sport. But what does help the sport is <laughs> is him playing. I mean, it's bizarre to say he should retire and, and Snooker would be better off. I don't see that at all. Um, and also, I mean, I, I always thought they were friends, the two of them, actually. But, um, yeah, I think there's two things. I'm not going to get involved in that because we're here to talk about the draw. But there's two things I would say. The first is that, well, there's two questions. Would Snooker be better off if Ronnie O'Sullivan didn't play anymore? The answer categorically is no. If you lined everyone up, all the players on the tour, in a big hall with equal seating around them and said to the public, OK, in you come, who do you want to watch? Most of them would watch Ronnie O'Sullivan. That's what he's brought to the game, people and interest and obviously, you know, at times brilliant, dazzling play. But I suppose the other question is, would Snooker be better off if he cut out the sort of negative comments and all of that stuff? Then the answer to that is yes. So... Anyway, Hussein had his say. Fair play to him, because I've heard other people say that privately who haven't said it publicly, but it just seemed... I don't know why he got embroiled in that. Anyway, he's avoided O'Sullivan. They, they couldn't play until the final. Uh, Judd Trump, you know, was sort of talking down his chances, but, you know, he'll have been practising. He'll be up for it by the time it comes round, of course, and uh, maybe the fact that he's playing... Although Vafai is a very dangerous player, he's playing a debutant. Maybe that is the factor that we'll, we'll see him through. It has to be said for five, he made a very, very good clearance against Lepay Fan to win 10 on on the black. So into the bottom half, Neil Robertson, Ashley Hugill. I think you've got to say that's a good draw for Robertson. Um, he tends to play well from the off in the championship. Um, he's very good at dominating players, particularly Ashley, obviously, you know, fantastic for him to qualify. He was 5-2 down to Martin Gould, won 6-5, and then won quite a nervy last uh, match against Joe O'Connor as well. Um, he's very much improved, vastly improved really the last year. He's done a lot of work. He moved over to Sheffield, playing the academies there and, you know, he's, he's sort of a local manager from York and get a lot of support. You never know. I mean, it would be a huge upset, but we've seen huge upsets over the years. But all things considered, what we've seen from Robertson this season, four titles and just the way he's played, the confidence he often has at the start of these tournaments, you've got to fancy him. But what what could happen is, say he wins comfortably with a load of breaks, the same narrative then comes in. Always oh, playing brilliant. You don't have to play brilliant at the start. So much of the first week is about getting through, and there will be an overreaction if he does play well. It's his to lose and all that. Total nonsense. You, you know, it, it's his to win. That's the point. You've got to try and win it. Um, and we'll see. You know, whether the deeper he goes, obviously quarter final round where he's lost the last three years is what's caused him out. But it, I think you have to say. All things considered, it's a good draw for him. Jack Lazowski, Matthew Stevens is interesting because, of course, Lazowski's the seeded player there. Matthew went to qualifying, needing to win to keep his tour card. Uh, his first match and did so. Now he's qualified. He'll be there for the 18th time. Twice runner-up. Was a mainstay for many years of that one-table setup. Um, hasn't produced consistently good snooker for a while. But, I mean, I, I commentated on his match in Turkey with Mark Williams where I thought he did play well. And he is still capable. He's proved it the way he's come through. Beat Ali Carter, 10-8 in the final qualified round. That's a tough match and a good win. And he could create problems there for Jack, who's not got a great crucible record, let's be honest. 
Although actually he did beat Carter in round one last year, who played very well. So, yeah, I'd be interested in that one. Um, you know, I make Lazowski slight favourite just on sort of general recent form, but he's not really pulled up that many trees this season, has he? So, yeah, interesting one. As is Luca Purcell not in Senkam, because Purcell has played four matches at the Crucible, lost them all. So still looking to win a match. Senkam uh, couldn't play last year, had COVID, couldn't play in the Championship, but the year before, 2020, in the sort of lockdown bubble World Championship, he beat Sean Murphy, and the only loss in a decider to Mark Selby when Selby had a century to win 13-12 in the second round. So Senkam, I think he's, you know, he's not, he's one of those qualifiers where he's not sort of top of the list of people you want to avoid, but actually when you think about it, <laughs> you probably do want to avoid him. Uh, John Higgins, Tepchar and New. This is Tepchar's fourth appearance now at the Crucible. He played Higgins the first time, then Judd Trump, then Ronnie O'Sullivan. So he's not getting great draws, but he played really well to qualify. Really well. Um, he had quite a few century breaks. Four, actually, in the in the last uh, match that he played against Matt Selt. And, of course, again, like Matthew Stevens, he saved his tour card. So he's sort of playing with a bit of a spring in his step. He's been reprieved. Um, and, yeah, he, I think... That could be, I think, a shock. I'm going to say from the off, you know, uh, even a month ago, I wouldn't have said that. I would have said Higgins, who's one of my picks for the tournament. But we know what happened in the Tour Championship final, that uh, sort of uh, turnaround that was actually quite painful to watch, I think, if you're a snooker fan and you respect John Higgins, as, as most people do. Um, you know, he goes there with all that disappointment sort of in the background. And Tepchire, with the momentum he's got through qualifying, I think he could cause an upset. Uh Remember, this is all fun, no wagering. Uh Sing Tong, Jamie Clark. Jamie uh, had a quite an emotional run. He had to win a match as well. It's interesting, so many of the players had to win that first match to keep the tour cards. Ended up qualifying. Beat Graham Dot. Tried to double the last black to win 10-8. Ended up trebling it. Fell to the floor and all that. Great drama. Um, Xiaoxing Tong, a bit unproven, of course, at the cruise pool. He's never... Well, he's only played there, I think, once before and uh, was beaten by Mark Selby. So he's got no record there to speak of, but he's had a great season. Um, and that, you know, he goes there full of confidence, just the way he's playing in general. Although, of course, the last um, best of 19 he played, he lost from 8-4 up to John Higgins in the Tour Championship, 10-9. So he's not got that much experience over the longer matches, it's got to be said. Now, an old rivalry uh, is resumed here. Sean Murphy against Stephen Maguire. Uh, you know, quite a backstory there. Not necessarily, they haven't always been the best of pals, but they respect each other massively. I know that much as players. Murphy, of course, got to the final last year. His form this season, you know, in terms of results, hasn't been great. He's had an injury problem, which has affected him. Maguire fell to 40th in the world, um, but qualified, battled through. Um, he just came out with all this stuff about take the World Championship to Alexandra Palace. I'm not going to go over that again because I've made my point about what a great deal the Crucible is commercially. Never mind the history of the sentiment. Actually, it's a good deal financially for World Snooker Tour. Um, but anyway, it's an interesting match. Two players who, you know, maybe a few years ago were sort of challenging for the title. This year, I don't think either's really been tipped. But they're both capable of great snooker. Maguire's not got a great first-round record, but going there as a qualifier maybe is different. He's played matches and he's not got that pressure of being a top-16 seed. Uh, penultimate match is Mark Allen, Scott Donaldson. Scott had his problems, health problems earlier in the campaign, but, you know, played uh, played well. He, he won one match 6-5, I think he was 5-3 down, and uh, you could see what it meant to him when he won. It just the, the, the delight of actually 
turning it around and staying in the World Championship. He was quite cool when he qualified. He didn't sort of... Uh, like a lot of the guys, actually, didn't really... You know, he's, he hadn't won the World Championship qualifying. He just got to the Crucible. So he was quite sensible in just saying, OK, this is good, but, you know, I want to go there and, and do well. Mark Allen has not got a good record at the Crucible. One semi-final, that was back in 2009. I'm just going to say this now. I think that could change this year. I, I think that Mark Allen's scoring power over a best of 19 makes him quite a big favourite in that match. He's a heavier scorer than Donaldson. And I just feel this possibly could be the year Mark Allen gets on a run at the Crucible. I'm not saying he's going to win it, but it could be the year. Of course, he is in the same section as Ronnie O'Sullivan. He's drawn Dave Gilbert. I felt sorry for Dave because so many of the guys who qualified were saying, I want to play Ronnie and all this. And he said, I don't want to play him. Why would you? <laughs> he was very honest and open about it. But that honest honesty and openness, well, it's it counted for nothing because he's drawn him. Uh, they played there a few years ago. It was quite a good match. Ronnie won. He had a bit of a meltdown afterwards, I think. Talk of, you know, he, he needed sort of professional help afterwards. Not that that's anything to do with Dave. It's just, you know, that 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 the way he was feeling at that time. Um, not an easy draw for O'Sullivan. You look at the draws of Selby, Wilson, Trump, Higgins, O'Sullivan. So five of the top six in the world. And they are tough draws. Um, I do kind of still fancy Ronnie to win it, but, you know, that's not a massive shock if Gilbert beats him. He was a seed the last couple of years. He was a semi-finalist 2019. Um, he's a good player. <laughs> Simple as that. Won a tournament this season. So, uh, the Championship League at the start of the year. So, yeah, it, that's a tough draw, I think. Uh, but that is the draw. It's fascinating, I think. Uh, I mean, it's always fascinating, but I think this year, because some of the favourites have drawn some of the tougher qualifiers, you know, you sort of look at it and you think, well, there could be upsets. And if there are upsets, then it is wide open still for the rest of the event. So I'm going to just rationally predict the semi-final. I haven't, I haven't even looked at this properly. The draws have been made. I'm just going to rationally just look down now, literally off the top of my head. And I'm going to say the semi-finals. OK, let me just write this down. This is good, really good sort of uh, podcasting this, where I'm just literally just writing things down and you can't see me what I'm doing. Yeah, so, OK, for what it's worth, and it's worth virtually nothing, this is my prediction for the semi-finals. Yan Bingtao versus Judd Trump, Neil Robertson versus Mark Allen, and I think Neil Robertson's going to win it. <laughs> but, you know, I'm probably going to be wrong, because, you know, the, the season hasn't panned out like that. Um, and, yeah, if Ronnie wins it, that's no great shock, is it? If Judd Trump finds form, it's no great shock. There's so many players capable. Mark Selby getting back into form. Shazing Tong continuing his form. I would be surprised if a qualifier won it. I'd be, I mean, I haven't got a qualifier in my little semi-final lineup there. Um, but, you know, it's been an unpredictable year and the fun is finding out, isn't it? And, um, and we will find out soon because the World Championship is going to start 10 o'clock, of course, on Saturday. Now, I won't lie, I actually recorded the second half of the podcast, which is the emails, yesterday, uh, just to get ahead of it all. But uh, in the meantime, we've had a couple of emails coming overnight, and out of respect to our correspondents, I'm going to read those. So, very shortly, you'll hear me saying something along the lines of, now to the emails, but before that, now to the emails. And the first one is from Nathan Manley. He says, Nathan Manley, good day again, Dave. Nathan Manley from Australia here again. Firstly, congratulations on reaching 200 episodes. I truly believe that your podcast is getting better and better each week. I've listened to every episode at least twice. 
Oh, thank you, Nathan. And also apologies at the same time. It's great hearing from all of your regular correspondents, such as Dave Tyndall, Alpha Bonzi and James Cook from America. It feels like I know them all personally and was thrilled for Dave when he made his first ever century. Let me say thank you for reading out my first email in episode 181. My family, friends and I got a real kick out of it. I can't wait for the World Championship to start and I'm hoping our own Neil Robertson can win it again. But to be honest, I don't really mind who wins as I love the excitement and drama of the World Champs and just bloody love snooker in general. As a lot of your correspondents like to suggest new ideas for improving the game, broadcast, ranking system, etc., I thought I'd suggest one myself. Here it is. When the referee has to put all the balls back into position after a foul and a miss, could they invent something that is possibly mounted on the lighting directly above the table that can project a coloured light similar to a laser pointer onto the table where each ball is to be replaced? Anyway, it's just an idea. Good luck with your commentating, and I hope you enjoy your time in Sheffield the next two weeks. As If you're ever out our way down under, I'd be more than happy to shout you a couple of ice-cold Aussie beers. Thank you, Nathan. Very kind of you. You're actually very close to something that did exist. Um, they had in China for a while a uh, similar thing. Basically, when the ball, sort of, it was projected, so it was on a screen. And when the balls needed to be replaced, there were little circles which showed you the position of the balls. So it would sort of flash on and off, and then if you rolled the ball into the right position, it would sort of freeze. So it was much more uh, technologically sort of advanced than, you know, the Chuckle Brothers to me, to you, the way they do it now. Um, I can only imagine that uh, our old friend Cost was the reason that wasn't sort of brought in across the board. It was in China. I never saw it used in the UK. Uh, but it's not that far away from what you have suggested there. Um, I think there's a general feeling. I mean, we had various technical problems um, during the qualifying. There's a various, fe- various feeling that there needs to be a sort of upgrade in general. Life scoring keeps breaking down. That useless World Snooker app, you know, the scores are very unreliable on there. Sometimes the frame scores aren't right, you know, and the sort of breaks. I mean, how, how can that be acceptable? And we had trouble with the, the broadcast. We had the pictures that were being sent. Uh, to Eurosport to, to stream were not arriving basically, you know, intact and the screens were getting blacked out and, you know, that's not Eurosport's fault. It's the, it's the way they're supplied. There's obviously some sort of connection issue on site, but in general, you know, I know technology can be problematic, but it can also be wonderful if it's, uh, you know, if it's, if it's working and it's just a general feeling that things need to be sort of upgraded and, and, and that idea of yours, as I say, has been around in a different iteration before and hopefully will will return and uh, the other email that came in overnight was from david burney our friend in canada he says here we go off into camelot to see who will grab snooker's holy grail this year i have a few predictions as we all have neil robertson looks to be the favorite and the strength he showed in the tour championship coming back from four nine to take the title ten nine he's got to be a sure bet to get his second world title you might see a theme here as if luca brissell can keep the goods going and take his game to a little higher level, he could be Belgium's first ever world champion. As a long shot, what is not to love about Iranian Cinderella story of Hussein Vafai? The qualifiers have toughened him up and could scare some of the top 16 players as they haven't had competitive snooker in a few weeks. Do we see the theme? Well, I'll be making my maiden trip to the Crucible this year to see its glory. Coming from Canada, I'm travelling overseas and looks like my picks aren't from the British Isles. Sorry, pardon the Canadianism, but we have to support those players that travel far to have a chance to hoist snooker's greatest prize. But, and there is a but, I've seen some professional snooker only once before at the Masters in 2018. So if on that experience I am to tip someone from your neck of the woods, Mark Allen will get the vote 
as perhaps I'm his Canadian lucky charm. All in all, I'm looking forward to seeing Snooker's Holy Land soon. And people are talking about the importance of the World Championship. Sure, crowds are back, but Snooker was invented in 1875, and this year is 2022. I'll let the listeners do the math. I'll do it for you. It's 147 years, is what he's saying, um, since Snooker was invented. Cheers to a great championship, and good luck to all involved, from the players, to the refs, to the commentators, to the directors, to the camera people, to production assistants, and to all us that will be singing out loud the Hazel Irvine song. Thank you, David. I hope you enjoy the Crucible. And... Uh, and now, the most awkward segue in podcast history. So to the emails. Now, uh, earlier this week, we had our 200th episode. Uh, you may have noticed uh, celebrations in uh, where you live. And uh, the tributes have been rolling in. Ian writes, uh, I'm a massive fan of the podcast. I don't dampen your 200 episode parade, but unfortunately, the episode for me is unlistenable. So uh, anyway, thank you for that. There'll be more tributes uh, as we go along. But uh, now we're going to talk about the Tour Championship. And, um, of course, that was uh, an extraordinary event. Uh, we heard from the, the ITV production team about how they made the, uh, put all the programmes together uh, earlier this week. Hope you enjoyed that. But uh, let's hear about the tournament. And, of course, it, it ended in dr- dramatic fashion. It was dramatic all week. But the final, of course, Neil Robertson coming from 9-4 down to beat John Higgins. Callum Law is a big Higgins fan. He said the Tour Championship was a great tournament. However, as a John Higgins supporter... I was left feeling with I was left with a feeling of despair. How he lost the final, I don't quite know. For the first three quarters of the match, I thought it was as well as he's played this season, with his safety particularly impressive. But sadly, as Neil Robertson came back, there was a feeling of inevitability about the outcome. Even still in the decider, I was clinging to hope of a trademark Higgins clearance. Unfortunately, it wasn't to be, and the ready missed after Robertson's botched plant was truly unforgivable. I still savour watching John Higgins play. I continue to mix it with the game's top players, but I find it bewildering that when the pressure really comes on in finals, he now seems to struggle. I know many pundits cite battle scars from previous defeats, which can have a psychological impact. But when you've been in tricky positions and won as many times as Higgins, I keep thinking surely he should be able to handle the pressure. A classic example which came to mind during the final was the 2009 UK Championship semi when Higgins saw Ronnie O'Sullivan come from 8-2 down back to 8-all, but John handled the pressure and won the decider. Sadly now, he doesn't seem capable of that. I dearly hope I get to witness one more big tournament success for John Higgins, although I feel it may be increasingly unlikely now. On a separate note, credit to Neil Robertson for the way he played. Over the whole week, he was the best player, and after the final, I thought he spoke with great grace and humility, as well as being a great player, in my opinion. He's developed into one of Snooker's great statesmen and ambassadors. The sport's lucky to have him. It would just be nice if he would stop beating my favourite player. And uh, James Buck on, on the same subject, he said, another tough watch last night. That's three finals this year where John Higgins has been multiple frames up with one more required for victory. Experience, quality, practice and talent will all help you get in that position. But getting over the line requires something different. It's the edge. You have it or you don't have it. You can fake it for a while, but it catches up with you. At least on this occasion, Rob Walker didn't push it too far, as he's been guilty of in the past, to ensure that he never would tears. I think Rob had empathy to back off and let John try and process what had happened. Fair play to Neil Robertson. He changed his approach mid-game, which is hard to do, and went on the attack. Relentless attack, never backed down, and got his reward. Looking forward to the story of the world. Keep up the good work. Thank you, James and Callum. Well, yeah, I mean, Phil Yates made a good point, I thought, on the commentary. He mentioned Mark Williams about ten years ago. He lost three finals in a row um, from winning positions. Uh, one of them was against Higgins in the UK Championship. There was one in Australia, one in Shanghai. But he turned it round and, you know, he started winning tournaments again and, you know, became world champion again, etc., etc. 
Obviously, John Higgins is now, well, he's going to be 47 uh, next month. So, you know, he, he's sort of, if, if, his, if his career was a friend of snooker, he'd be on the colours, I guess, at the top level. Um, time will tell. I, I wouldn't completely write him off. But it was a tough loss. It was, it was difficult to watch. And even at the end, Neil Robertson, he didn't give it any great celebration out of respect for Higgins. Um, the, the accumulation of the, the two other finals he lost, Northern Ireland Open and English Open from two to three to play. Maybe had an effect, I don't know. Uh, we'll see how he fares at the Crucible. Um, he's not a man known for, you know, collapsing by any means. He's one of the best pressure players in, in, the, in the game we've ever seen in the game's history. So, you know, when you say you either have it or you don't, well, he has had it for, <laughs> for 30 years. But yeah, it, it, you know, there's no getting away from the fact it was a collapse and, and that's just it. And it was, wasn't pretty to watch, but I'm sure a lot of Neil Robertson supporters nevertheless enjoyed it. And I agree, Neil spoke very well. Engaged it very well, and uh, and also uh, Rob, who I know well, has got plenty of empathy. Don't worry about that. Um, <clears throat> Paul Tibble still loving the pod. What a final! What a championship! Congratulations to Neil for his stunning comeback. John will take this badly. He'll no doubt go and win the worlds now. <laughs> well, we'll see. The standard is phenomenal currently. Do you think the governing body would ever change the materials or dimensions of the table to restrict the game in any way? If I understand it correctly, a heavier cloth will no doubt hurt the power merchants and tighter cuts on the pocket profiles will no doubt make it harder to score. Or shall we just bask in their stunning standard forevermore? Always interested to hear your opinion, looking forward to the Worlds and weirdly looking forward to a break as it's been an unbelievable season of snooker. If you take a break over the summer, have a good one. Thank you, Paul. Well, I intend to. Uh, yeah, I mean, no, I think the conditions help the play, don't they? You know, the fact that the conditions are so good, they help the players... I don't think we should tighten the pockets or make the cloths heavier. I mean, it's, it's enjoyable as it is, isn't it? I think, uh, you know, like any sport, uh, you know, you want the best conditions. And if the, if the grass is cut properly at Wimbledon, which it will be, or the greens are running, you know, in Augusta, as they should be, then you're going to get, you know, quality play. It's a test, yes, but, you know, you're going to get quality play. And that's what we're getting. And we're getting it not just from the top players. That's the thing. We're getting it right down the ranks. You look at the, the qualifiers we've just seen, you know, so many centuries. We had a maximum, of course, from Graham Dot. Very high standard across the board. You have to play well now uh, to, to get any sort of success. And even if you do play well, like Andrew Padgett, you know, he, he struggled all season. He made three centuries against Tepchar and New and got beat 6-4. So, so, you know, it just shows you, including his highest ever break in that match, but um, it just shows you, you know, even that doesn't guarantee anything. And now Mike McQuillan actually went. So he's got he's got first-hand, uh, first-hand insight into the Tour Championship. He said, I typed this introduction... During the final of the Tour Championship, when Higgins led 9-4. Glad I didn't click, click send. And this is what he wrote. He said, well, you called it. When John Higgins defeated Zhao Sing Tong on the first day of the, of the Championship with an epic fight back, you stated, you wouldn't be surprised if you went on to win it. How right you were. <laughs> well, how nearly right you were. Anyway, a great week of snooker with some excellent play and close matches. It was also a significant tournament personally, as my friend Ian and myself finally made good on a 20-year promise to go and watch some live snooker. We headed off to Clandidno on the Friday and saw the Ronnie O'Sullivan Neil Robertson match. We only booked tickets for the afternoon session as we thought if one player was 7-1 or 8-0 up, there'd be no point coming along to the evening. However, it finished 4-4, so we went straight into the foyer to purchase our evening tickets and ended up staying for the entire day. A great match and a fantastic day out in a sunny, if somewhat blustery, Clandidno. With it being our first but not last time along to live snooker, I made a number of observations. Too many for one email, I fear. So I split my thoughts across two or three emails. If you have time in future weeks, maybe you can read out part two, assuming you read part one, of course. Maybe other listeners who are considering going along to a match might find some of my musings helpful. 
Upon entering the arena, I was initially uh, I was initially struck by the pleasant manner of the security guards. They were all very decent and were a credit to the organisation. They were kind and courteous and also ensured people did not disrupt play or other spectators. I was also delighted with the way the security guards dealt with disabled patrons and their carers. It came across to me as if as though they gave extra care and attention to disabled attendees. It was very inclusive and again was a credit to World Snooker. From there, we noticed the ITV4 studio and commentary box. Indeed, seeing you in the commentary box was the only disappointment of the day. Not because you were commentating, but because it would be nice to bump into you and buy you a drink, maybe next time. I think I'm actually owed a lot of drinks by listening now, so I'll, I'll be making good on this at some point. Uh, he says, the MC was very good and G'd at the crowd. When the referee of the players came out, a few things struck me about the referee, Marcel Eckhart. I looked him up. Is he seriously 32 years old? He looks about 10. Anyway, Marcel was very smart and was superb at his job. We all see referees put balls back on TV, but when you see them do it live, it's very impressive. Marcel was obviously closely observing the position of the balls in every shot as he placed the balls back perfectly and quickly every time he was needed. One last comment on the ref. I was surprised he wasn't wearing a microphone. It was quite difficult to hear him in the arena, especially considering we are on the front row for the afternoon session. I suppose this isn't possible because of the sound needed for TV, but it would be good for the crowd if the referee was more audible in the arena. I don't want this already fairly lengthy email to drag on, so I'll finish with two final points. Firstly, the view, very good from the top left-hand side of the table in the afternoon, and also from the side view in the evening. The TV screens above also help when you can't quite see a shot properly. The TV screens lead me on to my final point, which unfortunately is a complaint. They were bright. There were bright LED lights lighting up the crowd. However, they were so bright they actually obscured our views of the TV. I was not the only person to think this. I know the crowd need to be lit, but surely not at the cost of being able to see the screens. Maybe just a thought there on possibly turning the brightness down. Anyway, Dave, I'll leave it there in case I'm sending you to sleep. More thoughts on this next week. Thanks for the great commentary and much excitement for the upcoming World Championship. Thank you, Mike. I'm glad you enjoyed your uh, trip. It's interesting to hear from people going for the first time. Uh, Marcel is an excellent referee. I agree on all that. And uh, yeah, the, the thing about the lighting, I mean, the, the sort of... <laughs> The demands of TV, you know, and the demands of the live audience are not always the same, I guess. It's a bit like you're saying the referee might up. I mean, they might up for TV, so they're very clear if you're watching at home. It is a different experience in the arena. I'm um, sorry that you've found the, the lights sort of um, obscured your view of the screens. Uh, it's different at every venue, I think. So, you know, you go to some venues, that wouldn't be an issue. But um, hopefully, uh, some will have heard that and, well, it won't be an issue again. We have two emails here about the same thing. Gary Park, thanks for your excellent podcast, to which I'm a recent listener, having discovered it about a month ago and listened to much of your wonderful back catalogue. Thank you, Gary. I'm writing while watching the Tour Championship final. I've noticed that Neil Robertson is sporting his gold-coloured triple crown badge, while John Higgins is not. Ronnie O'Sullivan was not wearing his earlier in the week either, I think. Do you think this is a f his forgetfulness or indifference on those great champions' parts, or is it a conscious gesture, perhaps suggesting that the triple crown is not the sole measure of snooker greatness, some media outlets would want it to be regarded as. The old saw that refuses to go away. See, I, I promised once not to mention it again, and I, I made good on that, just about. But other people have brought it up, and, you know, we are, we're in a democracy, so uh, I will answer that shortly. But Dave Priest has written about the same thing. Why does Ronnie O'Sullivan never wear his triple crown, crown on his waistcoat? All the others do, but it seems to me to be shunning it. Why doesn't the class of 92 annoy you as much as the Triple Crown? Both are made up, but at least the Triple Crown is accurate. BBC events, which are the so-called Big Three. 
I love your I love your definition of accurate there. Anyway, uh, whereas the class of '92 never includes the other players still playing who emerged in that year, like Joe Perry and and uh, class of '92. I think is it's just a very useful shorthand for those three players. Um, yes, other players turn pro that year, but I think people understand when we say class of '92, we're talking about those three. Um, and as, as has been said before, it's sort of off the off the back of the the class of '92. Uh, at Man United, you know, the David Beckham and Gary Neville and, and, and those guys, uh, uh, you know, Nicky Butt and these people, Paul Scholes. Um, but other footballers came in, I'm sure, that year. But they, th- those, I think there was six of them, were known as the Class of 92 and the three in snookers known as the Class of 92. This triple crown badge, I don't think Ronnie's ever worn it. John Higgins, I think, used to wear it. I suspect now, to be honest, what it is, because he lost weight, he's, he's wearing a different waistcoat and probably just hasn't had it transferred over. Uh, I don't think Judd Trump was wearing his. Here's the thing. Pretty much sure the players couldn't care less about the badge. They, they care about winning the three tournaments because it's a great achievement. But wearing a badge, do they, you know, do they really care about that? It seems not. I, I mean, Ronnie obviously is a great contrarian. Um, but I don't see him getting excited about that. It's, it's enough of an achievement to have done it without needing a badge. And also, the, the, if you look at sort of, okay, the, tri- the triple crown, you know, winning all three, yes, but he has won, he's effectively won six triple crowns, if you think about it, because he's won six world championships and at least six of all the others. So should he have six badges? Maybe that would be the answer. It's how many times you've won the multiple ones. So uh, Mark Williams would have two, I suppose, um, because he's won the Masters twice. Uh, yes, uh Etc. Etc. But yeah, it's up to the players. I was talking actually. I went in. I know I say I should never bring this up, but I went in the media centre and started discussing this with someone in there. And Neil Robertson was in there actually, and um, you know he wears the badge and he's proud of having won all three. But he made the point that he, when he won the Grand Prix, that was on the BBC and that was regarded as a major then. So things change, and you know I think we've had this discussion ad nauseum, and I. I think people are probably fed up of it, but um, yeah, it's up to the players. I don't think they really care about badges. They care about winning the tournaments, but you know, a badge doesn't really. What does it really mean? I don't, I'm not sure it's. Yeah, I'm not sure it's that big a deal um, either way. Of course, before the tour championship, we had the Turkish Masters, and Akif, he's from Turkey, and he's going to tell us all about it now. So he says, "This is Akif from Turkey. I've been listening to your podcast for quite a while now." It's great for my daily commute to in Istanbul, which takes about a couple of hours. Contrary to many people coming across your podcast during the lockdowns, I had in fact been listening prior and had to take a long pause due to my commute's halting, as well as increased workload. I'm a university professor and we had to produce a lot of new content for remote teaching. You still accompanied me on Eurosport Player during those difficult times, which usually was a fixture on my second screen working late at nights, as we're three hours ahead of you in the winter. So before everything else... I want to thank you for your excellent work, both in commentating and the podcast, which is very enjoyable. Very kind of you, Aki. Thank you. He says, my personal snooker history is quite short. I stumbled upon snooker on Eurosport and a hotel TV and got hooked almost straight away. The first tournament I vividly remember watching is the 2019 shootout, which Tep Chai, a new one. I recall the Turkish presenter occasionally explaining the rules, the ranking system, and repeating that the shootout is not usual typical snooker a couple of times. For some reason, I really liked the game and got my Eurosport subscription soon after. No offence to our local presenters, but I prefer you guys at the mics. Oh, all offence to them. <laughs> I'm joking, I'm joking. Uh, early on, I was pleasantly surprised to see that I can understand and follow what's going on on the table quite well. It's probably one of the reasons I like snooker a lot. 
Of course, I've never touched a cue in my life. I'm no expert on especially where to hit the ball on a non-trivial shot. But I generally can see what a player wants to do with the cue ball. Take football, on the other hand, for instance. I can watch a match for the thrill, drama, etc., but less for the execution, since I can't really read the game, spot the formations and tactics. I wonder if snooker is generally an easier game to understand. On the other hand, for example, I've heard some people being surprised when the commentator says a shot is no good because the cue ball ends up dead straight for the next shot, which makes the pot easy, but the position difficult. But maybe they're new as a snooker. What are your thoughts? Having liked snooker, I've looked at other cue sports such as billiards and pool. I've found I don't like them as much as snooker, not even close. I wonder if this is odd. Finally, I wanted to ask your thoughts about the recent Turkish Masters. It was an amazing experience for us, Turkish snooker fans, even if most of us had to follow it on on TV. The comments I've seen on Twitter, YouTube or on TV from the players, referees and commentators were exclusively positive. Everybody seemingly liked the venue, the tournament and the experience. On the other hand, I've seen a lot of criticism online, most of which I agree with, to be honest. In short, camera work was not great, the carpet was distracting, the advert panel was too crowded, the trophy itself was an abomination. The walk-on lady was really unnecessary. Most of these can be corrected with little effort, although I don't know if bringing a special camera crew to Turkey is viable. Maybe you might have more insight on this. Some people suggested there were missed opportunities, such as having Ronnie play an exhibition with Semi Saganar, Turkish World Billiards Champion. This, of course, entails playing Ronnie Extra, which Ronnie himself openly requested for, even partaking in the event. Many thought it would have been worth it. On the other hand, we're not privy to the financial and organisational side of things, so I don't really know if this was ever realistic. Ticket prices being quite high, even for UK standards, also suggests they didn't have funds to invest in Ronnie. Another point was about Grandma Fatma. Uh, I think it's Fatima, actually, isn't it? Anyway, a Turkish octogenarian who's a big snooker fan. I believe you mentioned her in the podcast a while back when another Turkish fan had written in. She could have been brought in to watch live, interviewed, or they could possibly have Mark Selby, whom she loves like a son, her words, record a message for her. Again, admittedly, we don't know if they tried to reach her or Selby, and Selby having his own problems recently, it's hard to say if it could have been arranged. You cover the tournament in the podcast, of course, but I'm curious as to whether positive comments from the players, referees, etc. are genuine or a bit sugar-coated for the Turkish audience. Furthermore, Jason Ferguson stated in an interview that they're targeting multiple tournaments in Turkey. Do you think this is realistic, or is it just a hype-building statement? I don't want to get my hopes up, but a tournament in Istanbul as a venue in the city centre and like the hotel in Antalya would be amazing. Until then, I just wonder if the second Turkish Masters will be in March again next year, or it's originally planned slot around late September this year. Thank you very much, and all the best. Well, what about that terrific email uh, from Akif? Uh, I did see Jason Ferguson in Clandidno, and he, yeah, he, he wants an, another tournament in Turkey, but, you know, obviously there's a lot to consider, and money is going to be the main thing. Um, I don't think the comments were sugar-coated. I think the players enjoyed going there, because obviously they'd been <laughs> largely stuck in Britain, largely stuck in Milton Keynes, largely stuck behind closed doors. So suddenly they're at this tourist resort. I mean, I think Judge Trump said, you know, we normally play in dungeons. Now they're at this stunning, you know, hotel, there's a re- resort by the sea, I mean, you know, if you didn't enjoy it, there's something wrong with you, isn't there? So I, I don't think they weren't just sort of putting on. Snooker players don't do that. You know, snooker players, as we know, speak their mind, and that's that's all to the good. I think people enjoyed it. The issues you mentioned, I mean, I personally had no problem with the carpet. I thought it was distinctive, and it didn't bother me, but I know it bothered some people. I think that's a pretty minor thing to get upset about, to be honest. Uh, the sort of camera work and so on, that was an issue that I think certainly... There was comment about, but the thing to say is, look, this was the first staging, so they'll go away. The promoters and World Snooker Tour will go away. They'll look at what worked, they'll look at what didn't work, and hopefully next year, you know, the changes will be made that will improve it. But you know, for a first staging, 
it was a superb event. I thought, you know, they had the maximum, obviously, in the final. You know, crowds built up during the week. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's supposed to be a five-year deal. So, you know, fingers crossed. I, th I think, uh, I mean, they put out the first half of the year calendar and it wasn't on it. So it suggests it will be back in a later slot next year. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think, uh, you know, as a first staging, it went well. And as I say, they'll look at what worked and what didn't work. And I'm sure the, the you know, the alterations and the tweaks will be made, which is what always happens um, in terms of, you know, the, the specifics you mentioned. Yes, yeah, Semi Saganar is, uh, is a sort of legendary Karen Billiards player and, and sort of trick shot um, exponent. An exhibition with him and Ronnie would have been great. But, you know, like you say, they're spending the money on the tournament rather than the stuff around it. So... You know, there's only so much money in the pot. Ronnie O'Sullivan actually, he did say in the press that he, he wished it had gone. When he said, I watched it and thought, why aren't I there? So, you know, he, he wanted money, he didn't get it. Maybe he'll go next year, we'll see. But, um, yeah, it, it's, it, it, certainly the figures in Turkey, the TV viewing figures are very good. So, you know, if there's a market for a second event, we'll see. But I, I suppose that the priority is to build up the one that, <laughs> that already exists and, uh, you know, make, make it over the years a, a bigger and better event every year. That would be, that would be lovely. Uh, we'll move on to Gordon. Now, he asked five questions. I'm going to edit this, Gordon, because a cu couple of them actually now are out of date because you sent it a couple of weeks ago. But um, here, this is the first one. He said, I strongly agree the Tour Championship should now be considered one of the majors of this historic sport, but I don't think it can be called that until it's able to generate a much larger audience. Venue Cymru has certainly helped to get it established. Do you think the Tour Championship now deserves a larger arena, a larger audience, perhaps ITV promoting it on the main channel and not ITV4? And more prestige thrown at it, similar in the way that WST and BBC have done in recent years in the Masters. The specific point about ITV, uh, the main ITV channel, Snook is very hard to schedule on there because they don't know how long it's going to last. Now, on ITV4, you can overrun because, you know, <laughs> that episode of Minder is not going anywhere. It'll be on again very soon. It's a bit different on the main ITV channel where they have, obviously, you know, your Coronation Streets and your... Even like the news, you know, they have to be on at certain times. But uh, ITV4 is a tr tremendous channel for sport because it can, you can just put it on there all day and uh, they get great viewing figures. Um, whether it should go to a bigger venue, that's been a discussion. Judd Trump said Clandino's a bit sleepy. I'll say two things about that. One, it's a lovely place and I think people feel good going there it's by the sea and it's relaxed. Number two, it won't be there next year. It is moving. Um, I don't think that's a, a massive scoop. It's just a fact. So it's not going to be there. I hope they have another tournament there. But the Tour Championship will be going elsewhere. Um, so that's just a fact. Um, which is a shame. But as I say, hopefully they'll find something else to put in that venue. Because, you know, it's well supported there. And it's just a nice sort of place to go. It's a nice feeling about the place, particularly when the weather's nice. So um, hopefully that will be the case. But yeah, maybe, you know, maybe as the tournament's grown. It's only four years old, that Tour Championship. So it's, it's still a relatively new event. Maybe it does deserve a, a bigger venue, and, um, well, it sounds like he's going to get one. Gordon continues, what's your thoughts on the calendar for next season? I like that we have a good number of events scheduled, considering it looks like China events are probably off again for next season, but I'm somewhat concerned about how so few events have confirmed venues, apart from the obvious ones. The only non-UK-based event with a venue is the European Masters in Germany, but that could change as well, depending on COVID. Should World Snooker Tour perhaps have waited to announce the calendar, when there's some more venues in place first. And last question for me, who do you think is the most likely chance of winning the World Championship and why? Well, <laughs> well, I think we sort of covered that with, uh, I did the one with uh, Alan, Neil and Phil. I mean, Neil Robertson's the favourite, so, but he, you know, the most likely, I don't know. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's uh, we, we've sort of covered that. But in terms of um, 
the calendar. I mean, it, they, they put the first half out. It's it's still a bit hit and miss because of China. You know, I mean, they they're hoping to go to Shanghai in November, but Shanghai, as we speak now, has gone into lockdown again. It's very hard to plan a calendar when you don't know if you can go back to China. And and listen, I have had issues at times with certain things that Will Snooker Tour have done, but they have my total sympathy when it comes to planning the calendar. I thought there were certain comments from players online when the calendar was released that were frankly disgraceful uh, and embarrassing. People saying, oh, where are all the tournaments? Well, do they not watch the news? <laughs> I saw someone saying, oh, there's at least 10 tournaments, you know, light. What are you talking about? There used to be five in China. We can't go to China. You know, there's other places we can't go to. You know, they put on the Championship League as a ranking event to give people a chance to play. Apparently, that's not good enough either. They can't just magic up tournaments out the air. They cost a lot of money to put on. To put on a big ranking event would cost a lot of money. So, you know, they're trying to plug the gaps and they're doing their best. And I will defend them on that. The, 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 the first half of the season coming up is very uh, similar to the one we just had. But... Players, particularly down the rankings, are saying, oh, well, the tournaments are for the top players. They're talking about the Kazoo Series. They're not for the top players. They're for anyone who gets high enough in the one-year ranking list. If you, everyone starts at zero, if you get in the top 32, you get in the World Grand Prix. Top 16, Players' Championship. Top eight, the Tour Championship. And we saw players, some players get into those events. Jimmy Robertson, he nearly dropped off the Tour. He could have been off the Tour. He, he got to the semi-finals of the Players' Championship because he'd done well in the other tournaments. So I think the players need to get a bit of a grip, some of them. I mean, it's only a very small minority, but, you know, complaining there aren't enough tournaments. Well, it's kind of out of Will Snooker's hands. Now, hopefully, the second half of the season, we can start going back to China, but there's no way of knowing, as, as our correspondent Gordon says, at the moment it seems unlikely. We don't know what's, how it's going to change. Let's hope we do get those tournaments back. But at the moment, you know, we are where we are. I mean, Snooker's done pretty well to keep going, and people have had a chance to earn a living during this pandemic. Um, so I was surprised by the criticism. I, I just thought it was really tin-eared to start complaining. They're doing their best, you know. They lost money over the course of the pandemic. They lost millions in ticket sales. That's why they're persevering with the streaming so hard, because they're trying to make money back. Um, so, you know, a little bit of patience required. Players are trying to earn a living, I get that, but, you know, it could be a lot worse than it is, I think. Um, and hopefully, you know, things will at some point start to turn around. Let's move on to Steve. Hi, Dave. Long-time listener of your great podcast here. Can you answer what's probably a simple question, please? How did James Cahill and maybe others become part of the World Championship qualifiers, given he isn't a professional and wasn't on the 16 invited amateurs list? I also see he's ranked on the one-year list, and I assume this is through qualifying as an amateur to individual events. Also, as an idea for your podcast, if you're looking for a second voice occasionally, have you thought about adding a way to include a WhatsApp voice notes with listener questions and comments? Keep up the good work and don't let the 200 mark be the end. Well, on the latter point, I haven't considered that because I'm not entirely sure what you mean, but uh, I'll, I'll, I'll have a look at that. I do know what, obviously what WhatsApp voice notes are, but in terms of how to incorporate them, uh, that could be uh, that could be asking a lot, I think. Uh, how did James Cale get in the World Championship? His Q school top-up, like Michael White, who, of course, is qualified, um, they didn't get full entry. So, for example, Stephen Hendry. Uh, who's on the tour, didn't enter. So that, that freed up a place. There were a few others that didn't get the full uh, quota, so they got off the top-up list, and, and, you know, people like James Cale, Michael White, were able to play in it. Uh, Scott McCarter. As Crucible time nears... Sorry, as Crucible time draws near, some thoughts on this bizarre season. Number one, Neil Robertson is player of the season, three ranking titles plus the Masters. 
He would be favourite in Sheffield, but recent history is against him. Number two. My favourite moment was Mark Allen winning in Belfast, unashamed local bias, especially the maximum in the last frame of his first round game. Number three. The Tour Championship is a wonderful addition to the circuit. And now we've got 3A, which is ITV4 and Eurosport of the best broadcasters now, although it would be good to have Her Majesty the Queen of Snooker broadcasting back for the BBC. Brackets Hazel Irvin. Yes, Hazel's back, and uh, Rishi Passad uh, is also presenting for the BBC, which is uh, terrific, because Rishi's uh, a fantastic broadcaster, very versatile, and of course, uh, I think he told me it was ten years since he's done the World Championship, so uh, he will be back. Uh, and by the way, uh, and uh, you know, while we're talking about the BBC, I've been told by an impeccable source, there was this big hoo-ha that John Virgo and Dennis Taylor were going to be ending their, their time at the BBC at this year's World Championship. Well, I've been told they're not. <laughs> I've been told they'll be doing it next year as well. So if that's correct, then a lot of people will be very happy about that. But uh, I don't know if there's been a, a sort of change of mind or whether that was even the plan in the first place. But anyway, it seems they'll be continuing. So uh, that's uh, that's great continuity for those two because they've been uh, obviously mainstays for, well, best part of four decades. Scott continues, your recent columns for Eurosport are excellent. Thank you, Scott. I wrote one about the Crucible this week, um, which is a bit of a love letter from me to the Crucible, and uh, I got some nice comments about it, apart from Will Snooker, who took exception to it, <laughs> as is their won't, being a weird, insular lot. Um, and uh, yeah, they they didn't they didn't like it, but um, there was nothing they didn't couldn't point to any inaccuracies, and I wasn't critic criticism. There was no criticism of anyone either, so who knows who knows what's going on there. Anyway. Uh, I don't need their approval for anything. Uh, number five from Scott. My tip for the worlds is Higgins with Wilson as a second horse. And number seven, uh, shouldn't it be number six? Anyway, number seven, the five new winners show the standard is through the roof. Overall, one of the best seasons in history. Yes, I mean, it has been. It's been terrific and it can only, it can only end well, can't it, at the Crucible because because uh, it always does. Tim Milgate. He says, I was wondering if you could comment on a technical question, please. There were some complaints about upside-down tables at the World Qualifiers. Stephen Maguire was the one who spoke out. For example, the black spot was nearest the crowd. Are snooker tables entirely symmetrical, apart from the position of the spots on the cloths? E.g., would the remedy be as simple as turning the cloth the other way or redrawing the spots? Or is it not as easy as that due to the position of the slates or other factors? I always enjoy listening to your podcast. Like all listeners, I'm looking forward to the World Championship getting underway Best two weeks of the year for me. So see all of us, Tim. I'm a little bit wary about offering an answer because I'm not an expert on putting up tables. Um, whether it's just a question you can just sort of turn the cloth round, I don't know. Uh, Maguire's problem was he said that obviously normally in any match you the, the crowd is sort of behind you as you break off. It's behind the bulk cushion. Whereas he, he said in his first match they were qualifying, he, they were behind the black spot, so he was playing towards them. Uh, some players have said actually that has happened before. It seemed odd, um, and it's, it, I think it was remedied for the final qualifying round. Um, but whether you can just sort of essentially just you know put the cloth on the other way, I don't know. Um, is the answer? Uh, Michael Deakin, my email wanders off the beaten track quickly, so apologies and bear with me. Well, Michael, you're in you're in the right company with that. He says, for me, year dot watching Snooker Live was the Crucible 984, Steve Davis versus Warren King. Round one, the nugget dominated throughout. My dad and I shared this experience with a friend from Sheffield, whose, whose dad refereed Snooker, and knowledgeably pointed out that Len Ganley incorrectly called foul stroke four points after a foul, rather than the correct foul four points, since a foul, he noted, needn't involve making a stroke. 
you could chew clips of Ganley back up this claim. I mean, it's a little bit late, I think, to berate Len Ganley for that, but uh, you brought it up, so anyway. Um, you know, it, I don't think it sullies his legacy, but anyway. Uh, he says, the 1984 Worlds featured six Canadians in the last 32. Cliff Thorburn, Bill Werbenek, Kirk Stevens, Jim White, Mario Mora and Marcel Gavreau. Is this a record for Canadian players appearing in the Crucible Round 1? I think the record for Chinese players in Round 1 is also six. Surely this is the year it goes beyond that figure. Lastly, this season has featured mature winners, Perry and Milkins, as well as first-time Chinese winners, Xiaoxing Tong and Fang Zhengyi. By ignoring all the other winners, clutching at a few straws and inputting just those elements into my Crucible winner generator, painted pending, the results are in. This year's winner will be Ding Wee. You heard it here first. Thanks for the podcast, Dave. Me and the dog love it. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, OK, well, there we are. Ding's going to win it. Dave Tindall did an extraordinary thing online, a uh, friend of the podcast, uh, sort of looking at trends and all sorts of things, putting it through his own sort of personal computer, uh, i.e. his brain. And uh, he he's saying Judd Trump's going to win it. So um, we'll see. We'll see. But uh, as to whether the, the six Canadians is a record, it's let's just say it sounds like it should be. <laughs> I'd be surprised if it wasn't. Um, in other words, I can't be bothered to look it up. Uh, Duncan Briss, love listening to your podcast, Dave. Will you be doing one celebrating the great man's 50th and indeed 40th anniversary of his titles? I'm talking about Alex Higgins, of course. 1982 is my favourite year. His matches versus Mountjoy, Thorne and, of course, White and Reardon were classics. Keep up the good work. The simple answer, Duncan, is no. But if you buy the World Championship programme, which you can at the, at the Championship, of course, and indeed online, you can read a special feature I've written about those anniversaries, the 50th the 1972 World Championship Triumph and 1982 victory by Alex Higgins at the Crucible. And the way Snooker kind of changed in between the two, and, and let's be honest, he changed a lot of it. His, his um, ability to bring people to Snooker was one of the big reasons that he became so successful in the 70s. Um, so you can read that, and uh, yes, I'm sure it's reasonably priced. Uh, we'll leave it there for now because, uh, you know, we're all getting ready for the Crucible. But uh, we're proud members of the Sports Social Network. Check out the other podcasts. You can email us at snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. I'm not quite sure um, when the next podcast will be, frankly. It might, might not be till after the World Championship. Depends on how the tournament goes. I remember last, last year oh, someone had a go at me for... They said it was the worst podcast I'd ever heard. Uh, it was an online review. But they also said we should have done one every day during the World Championship. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I hate it so much, I want to hear you every day. Um, that's not going to happen because I'm commentating the best part of 10 hours for Eurosport. So um, that's not going to happen. But I, may, I may, may pop up at some point just to see uh, see how it's going. And then uh, we will uh, be back. Uh, I say we. I'll be back to review the Championship when it's over. Um so, great excitement then. We've got the draw. We've got um, matches to look forward to. We've got 17 days to look forward to. It's live on the BBC and Eurosport and around the world on various platforms, including Matchroom Live. Wherever you watch the World Championship, I hope you enjoy it. There's nothing like it if you're a snooker fan. And uh, it, it can't not be memorable. And whoever wins it will have deserved it. Uh, it's a chance for snooker immortality if you win it for the first time or if you win it for... Multiple times, then it's a chance to really enhance your legacy in the game. And any season, whether you've had a great season or a terrible season, it can all rest on the World Championship. You know, Neil Robertson, if he bombs out round one, it won't have been a disappointing season, but it will have been a disappointing end. Whereas a player who's struggled all season uh, to, to win a tournament or, or make a, any sort of breakthrough, if they do well at the Championship, you know, it can... 
it not only transform their season, it can change their life. We know that. So I don't need to tell anyone listening to this what a big deal it is. I hope you enjoy it. And may the best man win. In the meantime, thanks for listening and goodbye bye. Sports Social Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChapaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now, the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.